So the second season of Last Chance You opens up with Coach Buddy Stevens watching the first season of Last Chance You. Uh, it's an amazing beginning. I don't know if you've seen this show. It is horrible and so good all at the same time. I love this show on Netflix. Netflix documentary, it's following um, East Mississippi Community College and kind of their run at a national championship on their level on a regular basis. And Coach Buddy Stevens is the head coach, and the documentary kind of focuses on him. And it's horrible for this reason. Like, the language of this show is, like, it's among the worst uh, of anything that you could come across. Um, And I'm not necessarily recommending it, but I am telling you for this reason, because the language, the profanity, the way that the coaches yell at the players and the words they use and the phrases they put together becomes itself a character in the show. It's kind of interesting, even just the language. And that's how the second season begins. It begins with Coach Stevens, Buddy is his name, with Buddy literally watching himself on a computer and watching the first season and hearing his words. And he's hearing his words from the Netflix documentary. And all of a sudden, he's kind of evaluating himself. And he doesn't like what he hears. It's an odd reality, right? To think about watching yourself on a Netflix documentary. Not as an actor, but like your real self. Like right there on the screen in front of you. And he like wants to change. And that's how the season begins in the second season. He wants to do something different. And so all of a sudden, he's decided he's going to like stop cussing at his players. And he's going to build them up with kind words. And he's going to just change his life. And he gets all spiritual. And he starts going all these religious things. And uh, spoiler, spoiler alert, it does not stick. <laughs> does not work past episode one um, of the second season. He kind of returns to his normal thing. And, and the reason Buddy does this is because it's kind of his motivation tactic for his players. Like he's one of those old school coaches that believes if you scream loud enough and use this like profanity laced sentence, you're players will like submit and like do what they're supposed to do and so he sees this in himself and he doesn't like it and he tries to change and it doesn't work the reason I bring this up is because uh it it really did make me think about that point like what would it be like to watch myself on the screen like that like to hear my words to see how I treat people um you know to see who I am when no one else is around or if I'm not performing in some kind of religious way um Especially if you're watching a show that shows your mind, it'll be frightening, right? Like, what would that be like? I, I think Jesus, in telling this parable, clearly wants us to be reflective. Really on one central idea. As you think through kind of the Netflix documentary of your own life this semester, what are you seeing? Like, here's the question. How are you responding to Jesus? What does it look like? Because we've heard lots of stories this semester. You've been around um, perhaps church all your life. Some of you maybe are very new to Christianity and you're exploring. But perhaps you've heard some of these stories. How does your life reflect those stories? How are you living in response to them? That's kind of the question that we're asking. And Jesus gives us in this parable two responses. And he kind of leaves it open-ended saying you're one of these two people. You're either the wise builder or you're the foolish builder. So let's consider both of those responses. And then we'll reflect a little bit on considering your response. So two men built their homes. The first one built wisely. In verse 47, we learn that he uh, dug deep. He laid the foundation of the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream couldn't break it down. So I think he did three things well. I'm going to run through this. He did three things well. He slowed down. He dug deep, 
and he built carefully. So he slowed down. Uh, I've seen a couple of counselors over the last few years, and I'm, and I'm fairly new to counseling in the sense of like going to a counselor's office and sitting there and talking about my life and my story and things that I'm dealing with or struggling with. And I've seen two different counselors over the last three years. I've just changed over, since uh, we moved. And one theme that I've realized now that both counselors have said to me is you have to learn how to rest. You have to learn how to stop. And I bring this up now not as a humble brag. Don't hear me saying I just work so hard. That's my biggest problem is that I work too hard. It's not that. It actually is a huge issue. Like it's a real issue that affects my life and can affect our family life. It can affect your life, our ministry. If I don't learn how to slow down and like rest well and take breaks and have boundaries, right? And the way that it affects, it's not just a physical thing like you need to sleep better or something like that. It's largely spiritual because when we, when we continue to work and go and go, and especially in ministry, what we're working out of and what I'm working out of is my own sense of pride, like what I can do, what I can offer, what I can accomplish. Um, it's really my overworking can be deeply rooted in my own idols, my idols of people approval or my idols of like wanting to accomplish the next task. And I rely way more on my own like sense of giftedness or experience or theology or something than I do on God himself. And really that's an indicator of where I am spiritually when I'm not learning to rest well. And it can affect my life in all sorts of ways. You may know this, many pastors burn out. Pastors burn out all the time. And I have already seen, I'm in my mid-30s, I've been in ministry just for like, how long we've been around, Kelly? Seven, eight years now, full-time ministry. And I've already seen so many of my contemporaries burn out, lose their families, lose their ministries, lose it all. And so I've got to learn how to rest. I've got to learn how to stop, right? Um, it's not just ministers, and you know that. Many of us don't know how to be ministered to by Jesus himself. We don't know how to slow down and listen. We don't know how to stop. We want to outwork Jesus. We want to keep going and going and show everyone around us how dedicated we are, how busy we are, how stressed we are, and prove our existence to the people around us with how much we can just keep going and going and going. And I didn't sleep at all. Like I had four, you know, all-nighters, and, and we just kind of build this resume of going, 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 and we pride ourselves in that. And that's really kind of sick. There's something wrong with us. When we kind of build our identity on our busyness, we've got to learn to slow down. And you know this, by the way, is because what happens when you go home for the break. I know for many of you, going home is super hard. Like this last week, you smile and say, thanks, it was great. I ate so much food. I had to take a nap. But what you really mean is you had a really difficult week. I know going home can be difficult for all sorts of reasons, but one of the things that so happens, happens so often with students when you go home, especially in this next break, what happens? You either get sick because you haven't kind of stopped and your body hasn't caught up, you can get sick, or you return to some old habits, some harmful habits, some things that you kind of thought that you were through with. I've talked to many students who say that, that they struggle most with pornography the second they get home. Why is that? Or students who struggle with anger in ways that they don't struggle normally during the semester when they go home. Why is that? Or depression sets in at a deeper level. Or laziness, or you rekindle an old, unhealthy relationship. All sorts of ways that this comes out. Why is that? 
I think one of the things is that we kind of live distracted lives without going deep with God. So we kind of keep ourselves busy. But another thing is we haven't learned to slow down when it's busy and be with Jesus. So that we certainly don't know how to slow down when we slow down to be with Jesus. I hope that makes some sense. Like, we don't know how to slow down spiritually. The wise man in Jesus' story slowed down and did what he needed to do to dig deep and, and build well. He calculated. He took the time to get there. And so he, he dug deep. That's the second thing he did. The rock on which he built his home was not just below the sandy surface. He took time. And he took effort. And maybe he had like an excavator. Did I blow something? I think I messed something up. We're fun. Okay, carry on. Um, he took a backhoe or he took whatever tools he had in order to dig deep, right? Hey, we can go without, by the way. Let me just keep talking. We don't want to be distracted. So here's the simple point about digging deep. What he realized is that he couldn't do it on his own for very long. He had to have the right tools in place, right? Any structural engineer will tell you that if you want a building to stand the test of time, you have to take the time to go below the surface. You have to go all the way to the firm bedrock. Every tower that's built in Manhattan, and there's a bunch of them, go deep before they go up, right? Uh, Kelly and I visited uh, New York probably just four or five years after 9-11, And so they had cleaned up the uh, World Trade Center site. And at that point, they were digging the hole on which the the foundation would then go up for the Freedom Tower. And I've read that that foundation went at least 70 feet deep before they started laying the uh, rebarb and and the concrete. So you, you go down before you go up. The man is not reliant on quick fix methods or temporary solutions. He was willing to take the time to do the hard work of digging deeply so that he could build carefully. And this applies in a lot of spiritual ways. Um, Part of slowing down is uh, being with God. And I I do mean that in all of the ways that just God tells us he's going to meet us. I don't want to oversimplify this, and I don't want to overburden you with spiritual disciplines necessarily. But God tells us ways that he speaks and the ways that he meets us. He speaks to us in his word. You know, we speak to him in prayer. And then he gives us his church. And if we're too busy to do those things, then we're not willing to slow down and dig deeply. And one of the things we want to do with you and RUF, this is just kind of a side note. Uh, in RUF, what we're so wanting to commit to is helping you prepare for the long-haul Christian walk. This is not a college thing. Like, we want to give you resources and tools so that you are a faithful believer, not just for college and excited about ministry, but actually so that you serve the church for the rest of your life. So that you continue to dig deep and grow well into your 40s into your 70s, so that you're faithful moms and nurses and teachers and engineers and doctors and churchmen. We're committed to that. We want to help you dig deep so that you can build carefully. And that's the third thing he did, right? Eventually he found the rock and he began to build the foundation of his home on top of it. So what's the foundation? Jesus compares this type of careful construction to someone who, did you hear what he said, not only hears his word, but obeys it. 
He not only receives Jesus' teachings, but he begins to build his life around these words. He doesn't just say the right thing or quote the appropriate passages, but the way that he lives his life, the way that he talks and the way that he walks and the way that he relates to people around him shows that his, that his life has been changed by the words that he has heard and received from Jesus. And so the foundation is, of course, Jesus himself. But what he's saying is his words that he has given us is the thing that builds our lives. And so Jesus says that when the flood arose, the stream broke against that house and it could not shake it for it had been well built. So keep this in mind. Jesus is talking about two different (laughs) groups of people in this parable. He's talking about those who hear and obey. And then he's talking about those who hear and they don't obey. What do you hear in common about those two groups? They both hear right? There are those who hear and obey and those who hear and they don't obey. They've both heard his teachings. And that's you. And that's me. We've heard Jesus. We've heard him teach. We've read the scriptures, many of us. And so what he's saying is to hear a Bible story is not enough. To go to church is not enough. To even read and pray and have personal Bible study, it's great. Those are the means of grace. But it's not enough. It doesn't stand on its own. And so sometimes when the time of flooding comes, you may still simply be wiped away if you haven't learned how to slow down, dig deep, and build carefully. I'm going to work this out in just a second. But Jesus shows the flip side of that, right? He shows the other response. There's a warning here in verse 49 in the foolish response when he says, But the one who hears... And does not do those words is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. And the stream broke against it, and immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great. So this is illustrated in like the the famous uh, visual of the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Right? I've learned, as I've read on Wikipedia, that the the Leaning Tower of Pisa, when when they originally built it, the reason it started to lean was from the very beginning was it was a foundation issue the sand was shifty when they began to build it and they were like that's fine let's just keep on going with it and see how it goes and so over time they've reconstructed it at one point it had a 5.5 degree tilt which seems significant but they've recovered some of that they moved it around now as i've read on wikipedia it is nearly the the top is about 13 feet off from the center That's significant. That's a foundation issue. That's someone who doesn't slow down, build carefully. What happens when you don't take the time to build wisely? You can't stand for long. And Jesus says this is what it's like to be someone who hears God's word and yet does not apply them to their their lives. Um, In another gospel, in Matthew's version of the same story, Jesus uses the word foolish. But here's the trick. The tricky thing about this is it doesn't look foolish. Think about this. The man who built his house like this built it much more quickly. Right? He built it very quickly, and it could have been a very nice house. But the one who looked foolish at the time was the one who was digging deep and, like, slowly working his way. One commentary noted that as long as the weather is good, the foolish man doesn't look so foolish. I think that's a great point. As long as the weather is good, the foolish man doesn't look foolish, but then the rain comes and he's exposed. 
And when the storms of life begin to crash down, the man whose home had no foundation will have no home to lay his head at night. Some commentary on this. Uh, it doesn't rain a lot in Jerusalem. It probably less than 50 days a year. Um, it rains more than double that here. And so when it rains in Jerusalem, it really rains. And that's, of course, the setting for Jesus telling this story. They typically receive more than 20 inches of rain in 50 days. And so what this means is flash floods. You've been around flash floods, right? Clemson's had some pretty historic flash floods around here. So imagine a flood coming upon these homes in a place like Jerusalem, where the homes are built primarily out of hardened mud at the time. So life was good for the second man until the flood came. And hearing the words of Jesus, the torrential downpour came, and when the stream broke against it, he said, immediately fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Now, here's a Greek lesson. You want want to learn some Greek? Take this home. Impress some people. You ready? The Greek word for great, I think you can memorize this. It's, uh, let me see if I can say it the right way, mega. The Greek word for great is mega. And so look at that sentence. When he says, the ruin of that house was mega ruin. That paints a picture, right? You see why Jesus calls this foolishness, not digging deep, not slowing down, not building carefully upon a solid rock, is to not build wisely at all. It is foolish to think that your home or your life can stand on its own against the floods that are guaranteed to come. We begin our semester, those of you who may have been here even the very first week, we talked about the parable of the sower and the soils. And one of the things that I brought up in that particular parable is that there were two different types of soils that I was concerned that most of us would identify with mostly. It's not the good soil. It's actually the rocky or the thorny soil. If you remember the rocky one, that's the one that produced some fruit initially, but it withered away when testing came. And then there's the thorny soil, the one that produced fruit on occasion, but it was choked out by the weeds of life and it drained the nutrients that it needed to keep growing. I think the foolish man is another example of the rocky soil. His plan looked good for a while, but when time of testing came, his house was wiped away or the plant withered. So I'm curious now, that was the beginning of the semester. I'm curious now, we we go all the way to the end. How do you see yourself now? As you reflect back over this semester, as you think through the Netflix documentary of your life, like what do you see? As testing has come, as the floods have risen, how are you standing? How are you building? As we close out the semester, I want to think with you, what is your response to Jesus' words? We've talked a lot this semester. I've talked a lot this semester. But there's only so much talking we can do. Jesus says there's some doing we need to do. And sometimes in like reform circles, we don't like to talk about doing. We need to talk about doing. Charles Spurgeon, the famous Baptist preacher, he once said in a sermon, and this is fantastic. He said, the common temptation is instead of really repenting, to talk about repentance. Instead of heartily believing, to say, I believe without really believing. Instead of truly loving, to talk about love without loving. And instead of coming to Christ, to speak about coming to Christ 
to profess to come to Christ, but to not to come to Christ at all. It's hard, right? Here's what we all have in common in this room. We have heard Jesus' teachings. How will you respond? What are you doing with what you've heard? Spurgeon says it's so common to talk about repenting without repenting, to talk about loving without loving, to talk about following without following. This semester, we've wrestled through 10 of Jesus's parables. And I think one of the main diagnostic questions that's come up time and time again is something on the lines of what are you trusting in more than Jesus? Who are you listening to more than Jesus? What are you going to to provide something more than Jesus? Whether it's meaning or hope or purpose or significance. Those are hard questions. The answer to those questions will lead us to our functional saviors, little s saviors. Whether it's performance or success idolatry or approval or comfort or pleasure idolatry, or whether it's power or control, tracing out the answers to those questions, what am I going to more than Jesus? What am I trusting in more than Jesus? What am I listening to more than Jesus? It will lead us to our functional saviors, our little S saviors, and it will lead us to understand a little bit more about why we're doing what we're doing or why we're not doing what we're not doing. Let me illustrate it this way with a, with a kind of difficult topic. Um, I read an excellent little book this semester uh, that dealt with a difficult uh, topic of sexual addiction. And the name of this book is called Beyond Accountability. And I want to refer you to that because it's online for free. Just Google it, Beyond Accountability. It's very short. You can read it in less than an hour. It's just an online kind of pamphlet thing. It's a first-hand, first-hand account of a man, a Christian man, who was struggling uh, and, and does struggle, certainly, with sexual sin. And for him, it was a man who began to make small, seemingly small decisions regarding sexual thoughts or behaviors that led to more and more decisions that led to some very difficult realities for his life and his family and his career. He moved quickly, over the course of time, really, from porn to prostitutes to random hookups on every business trip laid into his marriage. And it wasn't until he was called in the act that he began to seek help. And I'll leave most of the details of what happened and the way he uh, worked through these things to you as you read the, the story. But there's this amazing conversation I want to tell you about that happened toward the end of the book um, where he begins to seek out help. And he, and he gets involved in this um, kind of like a sexual addiction recovery group. And I think those groups um, can be really helpful. And he's involved in one of these sexual addiction recovery groups, and he has a sponsor, this guy that he checks in with every so often, and they have conversations around certain ideas and, and kind of work through how are you doing in these areas. And he recounts this conversation where his sponsor um, kind of gave him an assignment where he wanted him to tally up every experience he can remember and even money that he spent on his addictions. Now, I should also tell you, this was mostly in the 80s and 90s where porn was a lot harder to access. This was before we have free access at our fingertips at any moment. So he was going into adult bookstores and he was literally picking up prostitutes on the streets. And so he tallied up what he could at least remember. And he came to a tally of over $300,000 that he had spent on basically porn and prostitutes. 
And so he takes this booklet to his sponsor and he hands it over to him to review it. And here's the conversation. I'm going to tell you what he wrote. He said, my sponsor looked over at my work and he set it aside. He said, do you want to know what your biggest problem is? I said, it seems pretty obvious to me. And I pointed at the spreadsheet. He shook his head. Your biggest problem, Nate, is that you think sex is your problem. I blinked. What was he talking about? He continued, I'm not saying sex isn't a problem. You need to stop and you can't stop on your own. God is ready to help you and he will use people like me in the process. But if you think stopping that behavior is going to fix you and make you happy, you're crazy. Because sex is not your problem. Sex is your favorite solution. He says it's the medication that you've been using all these years to numb the pain caused by your deeper problems. And those problems, by the way, are common to all of mankind. I think there is something incredibly profound in those words. Sex is not your biggest problem. It's your favorite solution. Hear what he's saying there? We could say the same thing about so many other problems that we struggle with. That may be the one for you. And you're thinking even tonight, yeah, sex is my biggest problem. And, and he's saying sex is not your biggest problem. It's your favorite solution. You're covering your other problems with that solution. And it's not working. What are some other things that might be our biggest problem? Grades? School? Grades are not your biggest problem. They may be your favorite solution. People's approval is not your biggest problem. It's your favorite solution. Alcohol is not your biggest problem. It's your favorite solution. Gossip and judgmentalism. It's not your biggest problem. It may be your favorite solution. As you evaluate where you are here at the end of the semester, how are you building? What's coming to mind? Are you building on your own strength, hoping it works out in the end? Or are you laying a foundation on the only foundation that lasts? Are you hearing the voice of Jesus? Are you listening to the voice of the world? There's two options. Are you going to the real Savior with your real problems? Or are you numbing yourself over and over again with your favorite solutions? Jesus says to his disciples over and over again in the Gospels, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. He said in this passage, Why do you call me Lord and do not do what I say? How do you respond to those words? It's hard to evaluate this, right? It's hard and it's heavy, I understand. And it can be scary to think about. So let me encourage you with this as we kind of seek to close this out. Let me seek for you to begin to respond to Jesus, not out of guilt or fear like he's some mean football coach who's going to be screaming at you, waiting for you to get your act together. And I know that's how some of you picture God. You picture him to be Coach Buddy Stevens in the sky who's watching you and screaming at you again, you screw up. You did it again. That's not the God that we see in the Scriptures. Instead, let me encourage you to see a God who motivates us out of something incredibly different. And that's a God who motivates us with love, with a loving pursuit. It's been the theme of our parables, right? Over and over again. Think about this. We've seen... We've seen God's pursuit of his people. Let me give you, I'm going to recount a few parables. Stay with me on this. In the parable of the two debtors, 
We saw a God who cancels the deepest debts. Debts that no one could ever pay back on their own. And he forgives those debts by taking them on himself. That's a God of love. God of grace. In the parable of the sower and the soils, we saw a God who lovingly works in the dirt. He tills the soil, removing the stones, cutting the thorns so that we would grow deeply in him, being nourished and thriving in the vine that gives us life. That's a gracious God. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, we saw a God who stoops down to save us. When we who were beat down by the world and by our own sin and our own shame, he comes in the form of a Savior that we would never expect to save those who are otherwise his enemies. In the parable of the rich fool, we see a God who loves us despite our idolatrous and greedy hearts and gives us riches in Christ that surpasses anything that this world would ever have to offer. In the parable of the great banquet, we saw a God who invites the poor and the downcast and the cast out to a party of a lifetime. And even as the last time we met, we looked at the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And we saw a God who offers mercy to those who know they don't deserve it. And he provides the sacrifice in his own son who goes to the cross so that we who happen to be both Pharisees and tax collector sinners might be able to be with him in his holy of holies, to truly stand when the final floodwaters of God's judgment pour out, that we would stand only because we are standing on the firm foundation of Christ alone. That's the God of love. That's the God who's pursuing you. And I would even say, and I've said this before on a Tuesday night, if you've been through something very difficult this semester, I know many of you have. We've talked about a lot of the things that many of you have been through. I want you to see some of those circumstances as God's holy pursuit of your whole heart. Running after you. Wanting you to know his love so that you would be motivated to respond, not out of fear, guilt, manipulation, but out of love and grace and hope. To pursue him, as Jesus said, to do, why don't you do what I command? That you would want to do that in all these areas of your lives because you have been loved into obedience. Not tricked, you know, not bamboozled, but loved into holy pursuit of him. I'll end it with this illustration. We started with one coach, we'll end with another. Coach Dabo Sweeney, you know that guy? The head coach of the number one Clemson Tigers. Um, so Dabo has such a totally different approach than Coach Buddy Stevens. And everybody knows it. And it's fun to watch, like, you know, the whole country talk about Dabo's coaching philosophy. And it's kind of in his program. So last year, when Clemson played Ohio State, kind of, in the playoffs. <laughs> uh, Clemson played. Ohio State did not. So ESPN ran a story. I don't know if y'all caught this. They were comparing... Coach Sweeney's philosophy of coaching to Urban Meyer's philosophy of coaching. And one of the things that it brought out is that Coach Meyer is very much that Buddy Stevens type. He's known for his like fierce, aggressive, dominant nose to the grind, everybody do your job, kind of putting fear into his players so that they'll perform. He basically kind of beats them into submission, which is like definitely one coaching style. But as you know, Dabo has a different approach. Um, no doubt he's intense and he does those things in appropriate times, but his approach is what he calls family, right? It's kind of that hashtag all in mentality of like he wants to build this program around this idea of love. And it's, it's so interesting to watch that. And he loves his players. And if you're around the program at all or talk to people who are connected to the program, 
it, it seems to be very legit. Like that is how they feel. Coaches and players alike feel that that's the approach. And so his players don't perform out of fear. They're motivated out of the ways that they've been cared for by their coach. The ESPN story uh, said that one set of players in that story performed because they were performing out of fear of what would happen if they didn't. But the other players worked hard because they've been loved. And I just want to leave you with that picture. The idea of obedience in the Christian life comes out of understanding how much you've been loved. Not guilted, not manipulated, not fear-based what will happen if you don't. But instead, look how you've been loved. Look how you've been pursued. Now pursue that God. Both in your days at Clemson and beyond. There's two options. One is to build on a foundation that is temporary and when tested it will fall. But the other way is to build on a solid foundation. Standing on Christ the solid rock alone. How will you respond? Let me pray for us.